This is Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! This episode is brought to you by The Felder Report. Uh, each week I go through a ton of reading and research. In fact, it's how I start my day every day. I go through a few hours of reading, uh, research reports, charts, a variety of things. And every week I put together my favorite two or three of these into a Saturday morning email. Um, it goes out just highlighting uh, a few of the things that I found very valuable over the past week. If you're interested in receiving an email like this on Saturday mornings, go to thefelderreport.com. Uh, right there on the main homepage, you can just put in your email address and you'll be all set. My guest for this episode is Ben Hunt. And when I first came across Ben's stuff a while back, I thought, uh, I have to have this guy on the podcast because I, I, I really would just love the opportunity to dig into his investment process, which is so unique and so valuable. Um, and so I basically used this opportunity to do just that. And uh, we, so we spent a lot of time on, on digging into what it is that Ben does, how he looks at the markets. And it really does transcend a lot of the things investors spend most of their time thinking about. Things like value versus growth, active versus passive. Uh, ben focuses time and energy on what really moves markets over uh, you know, really any period of time, and that is um, narratives. And uh, so we discussed that. We also discuss his view on everything from uh, the inflation narrative to that surrounding the backlash against big tech uh, and, and a whole lot more. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Ben Hunt. I wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500 because they're sheep and sheep get slaughtered. Ben Hunt, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jesse. It's great to be here. I've, I've, I've wanted to have this conversation with you for a long time. So uh, thanks for the invite. Well, that's great because, you know, I've been reading your stuff and just thinking to myself, every time I, I read one of your you know, posts on, on Epsilon, God, I got to have this guy in the podcast and just the chance to, to discuss some of these things and ask some of the questions that I have. But I got to first ask you, a lot of the stuff that you write um, has a lot of you know animal metaphors and things, and I gotta yeah. know more about this your farm property. Where do you live? Tell me about the farm a little bit. Uh, well, you know, I, I'm I'm a I'm a dilettante farmer. You know, in the uh, in the in the tradition of of uh, Eddie Arnold in, in in Green Acres, it's 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 that bad, really. So I I'm um, I live out in Connecticut, uh, you know, in Fairfield County, Connecticut. Uh, I like to call it the, the wilds of, of Fairfield County, Connecticut. Um, and what I mean by that is where we are out in the woods. We're in one of those little Connecticut towns. I mean, like say we're still in Fairfield County, so it's a a ten minute drive to a uh, you know to get our artisanal mezcal and uh, a, a, an amuse bouche. Right? If we if we have a bad day, uh, you know, out of the farm. So you know. Jodes, you know this 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 ain't this ain't the Jodes working the farm, you know. Uh, but uh, we we found the place. Uh, I say we; it's my wife, and we have four daughters. And uh, we we found the place uh, about eight years ago. We've been in Connecticut for about God <laughs> eighteen years now. You can tell from my voice; I've got a southern accent. So my my family considers me an, an absolute Yankee by now. 
So, um, yeah, we've been up here in Connecticut for 18 years, and, and the last eight out here on this, this property we found. And, you know, I, I, I'll say that the magic of this place, and it is magic, is that it's been such a wonderful place to raise our children uh, the way we wanted to. And, and what I mean by that is to, and, and I'm, I'm using the royal we in all of this. <laughs> so uh, so it's, it's my, my, my wife's work, you know, much more than mine. I'm like the family mascot, you know, they, they, they pat me on the head when I come in the door. Uh, but it, 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 it allows us, uh, my wife and myself, to take, uh, I'll say, more personal responsibility uh, for the, the, the education of our kids. Uh, because we do combine it with homeschooling, which is, you know, for, for a long time there, I, I, I didn't want to tell people about it because it just, it just leads to much longer conversation and, you know, they make assumptions about, um, I'll say, you know, you're either a religious wacko or you're, a, you know, a, a, an anti-government nut or anti-social nut. And, okay, maybe I'm a little anti-social, but uh, the, uh, it, I, I'm really happy to talk about it now because it, it was the best decision that, that our family ever made uh, some eight years ago. And uh, so, so life out here and having some animals, uh, you know, they're mostly pets, right? I mean, you know, we, we've got sheep, we've got goats, we've got horses and chickens and bees, which I, I particularly like to write about. Uh, it's, 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 been, it's been the construction of a life, particularly for our family, uh, that uh, is, has been both very rewarding uh, for us uh, as a family, but, but also rewarding, I think, in giving me, if not perspective on, on investing and politics, at least, I'll say, a, a language, a vocabulary with which I, I find I'm able to describe what can be overly complicated and scientificized concepts uh, in markets, you know, I'm, I'm, I find that it really helps me to communicate these concepts um, more effectively, and and so that's what I try to do uh, in a lot of the writing. So the you know the the writing has really been a or the improvement, and I think it has been improvement in the writing has been a byproduct of. What we started, you know, eight years ago, really as a as an effort to to live the kind of family life that we wanted to live. And I don't know, Jesse. I mean, I I, I think you may have done something similar with with you know how you live and and, and the like. Uh, but but that that's that's what it was for me. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I moved here to Bend, Oregon, twenty almost twenty years ago, um, and. You know, we actually live in, you know, a very, it's it's not so rural anymore. Bend is, you know, basically like right. the population since we've lived here. It's 100,000 100, people. But, and, and we've gone from having a little more land to now we essentially live in like a brownstone. But uh, my in-laws have 20 acres here in town. And both my teenagers have spent their summers, you know, working out of the, we call it the ranch. And mm-hmm. so learning how to drive track the tractor and, you know, mend fences and, move hand lines and do a lot of that kind of kind of work. And I think it's just been really great for them to not just learn, you know, like a work ethic, but also, you know, be outside and working with their hands and, and that kind of stuff. So 
Um, but I, yeah, I just, I, you know, I think you're absolutely right in terms of, you know, uh, your uh, experience you know, on your property and with the animals in particular in, in, in that giving you um, some insight and, and ability to communicate things through metaphor that's been, been really valuable. But you, you came to finance later on in your career. Yes, that's true. You have, you have a PhD in political science, is that right? It, it, that, that, that's right. You know, of, of all oxymorons, you know, um, you know that term political science. Uh, yeah, you, you know, I, I, um, I've was always interested um, in political science because it's the, as opposed to economics, let's say, because while money is certainly a form of power, you know, political science, I, I, I think, in, in a lot of respects, subsumes or encompasses economics because it's, it's really the study of power uh, at a more basic or fundamental level. You know, there are all sorts of, 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 modes or, or, or methods for power, right? There's the power of the gun, there's the power of the ballot box, there's certainly the power of money. Uh, but what I, I really appreciated about political science was, I'll say it's, and this is still the case, I think, it's intention A, to make a, uh, take a more uh, historical approach uh, to understanding these, these modes and methods of power, and also to take a broader approach where it's it, it certainly includes the power of money, uh, but also includes the power, like say, of the gun in the ballot box. And you know, what what I was really interested in uh, as a graduate student, and then uh, you know, spent ten years as a professor, was the, the the source of power that comes from communication, that comes from. Um, you know, not the and, it, and it's not a, a a random phenomenon, right? The the use of words and language to change our behavior, to exercise power. There are real patterns to this, and and that's what really fascinated me, uh, you know, in my my academic career. And it's something I've been able to to, to bring to bear now in my uh, investing career is understanding that mode of power, the power of words, uh, the, the, the power of, of narrative, the power of what we'd call in game theory, you know, the common knowledge game, the, the, the rules by which one can exercise that power or resist others exercising that power upon you. So, you know, that was really my focus uh, in academia. And the the the... The, the the wonderful or in terms of the self the self fulfilling aspect of now writing epsilon theory and the like is that I feel like I'm able to 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 bring to bear uh, that academic let's call it training or 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 research and really apply it again to these real life issues that that, that all of us have today as as investors and and frankly as citizens. Well, that's especially interesting to me, and one of the reasons why I was really looking forward to this conversation because I'm, you know, least interested in a lot of the opinions and the views of you know people who came up from within the industry and studied that right, and, right. you know college because it's it's so um, it's just tired in my view, and, and I'm not afraid to, to say that you know I think a lot of most 
you know, and, and this is kind of a, a you know, just the, the Charlie Munger kind of view of the markets, which is, you know, a lot of the most valuable insights and things that you'll gain um, come from disciplines outside the world of finance. Oh, and the more of it, it you can kind of put together, the, the, the kind of the more uh, valuable insights you'll be able to, to glean. Um, well, well, you know, Jesse, that, that's so right. And, and I know that this also mirrors a bit of your background as well, because, look, there, there, are, there are periods of time not just in in investing, but in any any endeavor, where you know, look, coming up from inside uh, works just fine, right? So you know, uh, and, you know, I think again, this this mirrors a lot of of your experience as well. But you know, I, I didn't get involved in in the public markets until until two thousand and five. So I was a I was a professor for ten years. Always had an entrepreneurial bug, which really is a, a a bug not a feature and you know anyone who's afflicted with that disease of of being an entrepreneur knows what i'm talking about but uh you know i left academia left a tenured spot to to start a software company and um you know it did did well with that and and i i i was looking for you know what to do and i really enjoyed the the game, you know, we'll keep talking about game theory and games. I enjoyed the game of investing uh, originally in terms of private markets, venture capital, but then trying to understand the game of uh, public market investing, but doing it as an outsider. And and so, you know, came into the this business in 2005. And you know, I, I really think that kind of in those mid-2000s, the mid-aughts or whatever you call them, you know, it, it wasn't so much of an advantage to, be, to come to have an outsider's perspective. Because uh, when I look back at, at, you know, both, you know, my fund's performance, you know, we did, we did perfectly well. We did great in 05, 06, 07. But, you know, it, it really wasn't because of any kind of external perspective that I was bringing to bear. But you know that all changed, and I know you felt this as well. It all changed in two thousand and eight, where, where where having an outsider's perspective, coming into this world of investing, not from Wall Street, where you are inundated with the constant flow of information, the communications, right? To, for what we we're talking about earlier, of buy, 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 but to but to have both a historical perspective. In my case, a, a game theory perspective, it that made all the difference. And there, there, there are periods of history where having that outsider's perspective makes all the difference in the world. And and certainly 2008, 2009, and, and since then, I, I I think that that outsider's perspective has been the most important thing for for dealing with what is in many respects a. Uh, a financial world that's that's been turned upside down and is still turned upside down. So uh, you know, I, I yet I I think that that mirrors a lot of your experience, but that was certainly mine. Well, and so you know, it was you said, you must have seen the opportunity to apply you know the concepts of of game theory and and you know the, the power how power is accrued and, and lost uh, through, you know, your study of political science and how that could be a valuable uh, applied to the markets. Well, that that's right. And, and it was really valuable 
uh, in 2008, that's when um, that sort of outsider's perspective really first paid such such dividends for uh, for for our investors and our fund because I think what an outsider's perspective allowed one to do was to recognize and this will get a little in the weeds but I I think it's a a good set of weeds to get into but you know if you, if you had an outsider's perspective and you were able to read the language that Moody's and and S&P used in their in their ratings of of particularly of mortgage backed securities and you know it's it's not a it wasn't a secret language right but but it is a language that that I'll say most people can't read or have to have read for them by the high priests of economics and the like um, but if you could read the language on your own what was incredibly clear is that it was that you know by you know the end of 2007 you had what amounted to be a, a ten trillion with a T trillion with a T asset class of uh, residential mortgage-backed securities, all based on a formula, right? A, a, a rating, all all rated as essentially, you know, based on a on a notion of safety that was based on the on the single assumption. It was. It was. It was. Uh, I like to call it an inverted pyramid, a, a, a ten trillion dollar inverted pyramid that had one simple assumption, and that assumption was that it is impossible to have a nationwide decline in U.S. home prices. All the the, the entire asset class was based on that assumption, and if that some assumption were to be violated, then everything was going to come crashing down and and it really was that sort of outsider's perspective that that allowed uh you know our, us as investors to to do well for our for our clients and 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 really that was the first experience i had of of really why an, an outsider's perspective at different points of time in history is so important now you know the second time where uh, i'll say that perspective really came to bear for me was not successful right it in the summer of 2012 uh, when uh, you know we were we were looking at a a, a potential uh, collapse in the euro system uh, you know what you know Portuguese five-year debt was trading like yeah, I think it got up to like fifteen percent or something like that, right? So, so trading like a a, a corporate uh, bond that's about to go under, and I was very involved in that, right? Because I, my my risk antenna are really set up to to play on the short side, to look for dislocations, uh, and this was this was a huge dislocation. And so I had all my positions set up in the the fund I was running at the time and the like. And in the summer of 2012, I had my teeth kicked in by Mario Draghi, right? So that was the the the, the summer of uh, whatever it takes, right? Which was which was literally a speech he gave in in London, where he he woke up that morning, you know, because he, he, he's for whatever reason he saved the notes to that speech, and he he it's one of those situations where you know as old say goes you look at yourself shaving in the morning and he jotted down in pencil that phrase that uh you know we will do whatever it takes and believe me it will be enough 
that was a it was an afterthought. It was something he jotted on to give it his speech in in, in London, uh, and that speech and those words followed up by more words. The uh, the OMT program at the ECB, the words of uh, Merkel and at the time Sarkozy saying yes, whatever it takes, whatever it takes. Those words combined with direct intervention. Uh, by the, uh, I'll call it the, the European equivalent of the, the plunge protection team, that changed the course of markets uh, in, a, in a positive direction for markets in the summer of 2012, purely by the words. And so that was, I guess, the, 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 the other formative experience for me and what really drove me to start writing Epsilon Theory was that was that the summer of 2012? So, kind of putting together the the 08 experience, the the 09 experience with the Federal Reserve, uh, you know, starting its its QE program, really starting to rely on forward guidance, and then seeing its what I'll call is kind of the 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 apotheosis of forward guidance and the use of communication policy. Uh, again, the use of what I'd studied back in academia all those years ago, just using your words to change behavior and to do it so effectively as Draghi did in the summer of 2012. You know, that was really the second, and in, you know, in terms of my finances, you know, a lot more searing event than in 08, about the power of words and the, the, the forms and processes that those words followed. And so that was really the impetus for me to, to start writing Epsilon Theory and to start trying to put it all together, right? Well, how did this work, right? How, how did this all happen uh, in, 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 in 08, in 09? How did it happen in 2012? Because just looking at, I'll call it our traditional fundamental metrics or the, the things that, that anyone in markets is trained to look at, it, it, it wasn't telling, I, I felt like, even you know, a small portion of the story. That one really had to look at these, uh, uh, the, the use of communication as a source of power uh, to, to, to really understand what was happening and also how to survive going forward. Those were my two big experiences in this regard. You know, it's that's just so uh, insightful from my perspective. And, and I, I know you've written about a, a lot of what you do is studying these kinds of you know, like meme introduction and contagion and, and, and what creates those things, what's behind that process. Um, and that ex- is exactly kind of what, you know, it seems you were talking about through that mm-hmm. is, is, you know, the whatever it takes kind of took on a life of its own. And, and yes. people started, started believing that. And that was literally the only thing, you know, and it's like, it reminds me of the bottom of the, you know, stock market bottom in 2009 also. It wasn't, you know, um, the Fed had been doing quantitative easing and all these things. And, and But what really, you know, was the, I guess, precipitated the bottom, at least from my perspective, was when they um, did away with mark to market accounting. And all of a sudden, people could believe that the banks weren't going to be in right. anymore. That's so right. It's, you know, it's it's a matter of just this, uh, you know, these memes being introduced and then them grabbing on. And so, um, let, let's dig into the the, pro- the process of how you start, how you think about this sure. a little bit more. Um, you mentioned the common knowledge game um, early on in the in the discussion. Can you ex- just explain that and how how that? Oh yeah, no, I'd, I'd I'd be delighted to, and and I'll. 
and and I'll try to connect it with uh, you know what's happening right now. So so first of all, what is common knowledge? And common knowledge, and the the reason we call it a game. All games, what they have in common, it's it's a it's a social interaction, right? It's the old saying, you know, it takes two to tango, right? It takes at least two people to play a game, and and of course, the most powerful games that impact our lives are these social games where it's not just obviously two people playing the game, even though that's how they're these games are usually described, right? So if you have People talk about prisoners' dilemma, or they talk about a game of chicken, or the like, and and they're usually stylized and presented as, well, you know, like in the game of chicken. Okay, you've got Kevin Bacon, you know, driving a pickup truck against a, you know, a combine, you know, in the movie Footloose. But in truth, in fact, you know, the the, the games that really impact our lives are are the games of crowds, uh, the games not of two players, but of of thousands of tens of thousands of, of hundreds of thousands of players i mean that is the game of markets that is the game of politics and and there are rules for those games and the i, I think the the most interesting set of rules is is around the crowd looking at the crowd uh, and that that's that is what common knowledge is so so common knowledge is not necessarily public knowledge it can you can imagine common knowledge actually being private knowledge but what what common knowledge is is information that everyone in the crowd thinks that everyone else in the crowd has right so it's 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 not what everyone thinks it's what everyone thinks that everyone thinks <laughs> and that 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 sounds like a you know a <laughs> They talk about kind of in you know Indian philosophy about you know it's just you know, infinitely regressive, right? That it's turtles all the way down, you know, is the kind of cosmology of of, of of some you know of some you know Indian uh, religions, but uh, it's not infinitely regressive. It's just that it's just that simple notion of of what everyone thinks that everyone thinks. We, so it's not the consensus, we, right? The, the consensus right. is this notion of what everyone thinks. It's it's in many respects the consensus of the consensus, and that you know, that. You, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. It's it's it, it, just just thinking of that. You know, it's it's what everyone thinks that everyone thinks. That that's the key to how all the game plays out, and so that's the core. That's the core, and and what. It's fascinating to me, and this is the historical perspective, is that leaders, smart, effective leaders, politicians in particular, but you know, also clergymen and you know, generals and anybody in a position of, of having to command or control a crowd understands how this game works. So the in in you know if you look up common knowledge game on Wikipedia, they'll 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 often use a couple of examples that usually describe the leader. They, they'll describe that person as the missionary. Right? Because the 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 effective play of this game is much like an effective missionary, which is that you stand up on a on a pedestal you know, you've got to have your megaphone, you've got to have your cameras on you. 
And then your goal as the leader to be an effective missionary, to um, channel the crowd in the way you want to channel the crowd, is that first you want to make the crowd realize that they are part of a crowd and that they should be looking around at the other people in the crowd. So I'll, uh, you know, I'll, g- I'll give you a specific about this because I look. Whatever you think about Donald Trump's policies and politics, what what I will tell you, and I hope we can all agree, is that he is an incredibly effective uh, missionary, an f- incredibly effective player of the common knowledge game. And what I mean by that is he's he's scheduled a uh, a campaign speech uh, tomorrow night, I think in Duluth or something something like that. But but I, here's what I promise you. The first things that Donald Trump will say when he gets up on stage tomorrow night, he will talk about the size of the crowd. He will talk about the excitement of the crowd. He will force the crowd to start looking at itself. Now, I, I don't know how he figured this out. Like I say, this is this is instinctive for, 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 for politicians throughout history who want to uh, mobilize and control a crowd. I think it comes from his reality TV experience because this is also why uh, sitcoms have laugh tracks. Right? It, it forces the audience at home to recognize that there's a crowd watching this. You know, you're you're hardwired to respond to this. You will enjoy that show more if it has a laugh track associated with it. That's how a laugh track works. You know, this is why American Idol, you know, to take a reality TV show, that's why they, ha- they film it in front of a live audience. Not because they care about the audience, but because the audience at home will react more positively to the show when they see this crowd of excited people reacting to it. So Donald Trump gets that. He gets that. It's, it's why I'm convinced he made such a big deal after his inauguration about making the, the, the patently, obviously, false statements that more people attended his inauguration than any other. You know, it didn't matter what the truth was. What mattered is making that statement of forcing the crowd, and the crowd is all of us, to look at us. So that's that's step number one. Now, step number two of the effective playing of the common knowledge game is not to tell people what to believe, right? You're, you're not trying to tell them facts, right? What you do, and, and I've, got, I've got this wonderful collection of, of photographs of everyone from central bankers to politicians to, you know, you name it, doing this. What an effective missionary does is they get up and they shake their finger, literally shake their finger, usually, at the audience. And the, the reason you shake your finger at the audience is you are truly... Uh, exerting your, your your power over them, you're lecturing them, not to tell them the facts, but you're trying to tell them how they should think about the world, right? Not what to think about the world, but how to think about the world. And to pull it back to markets, that is exactly what Ben Bernanke, Janet Yellen, now, Jerome Powell, that's what they do. That's what Mario Draghi did and continues to do. Central bankers have, it's, they've been late to the game, but they've, they've, they've taken it up with abandon, the game of forward guidance, the game of sending out Fed governors 
look, you, you, can't, you can't go a day without seeing an interview with a Fed governor, right, uh, on CNBC or on you know, the Journal or something. That's an entirely intentional policy. Uh, it is the use of words and literally shaking a finger at someone not to tell them, oh, the unemployment rate is X, Y, Z, not to tell them your true views of the world, but to use your words in an effort to train the audience, to get the audience to say how they should think about the world and thus change their behavior. It, it, it's, it, it's an incredibly powerful um, force Again, it's the power of words, the power of, I'll use this phrase, mere words. But when presented by an effective missionary in an effective venue, meaning you've got a megaphone or a camera, and done in a way such that you force the crowd to focus on the the rest of the crowd, that's how common knowledge is constructed, and it's, it's, it's just the most powerful force in, in, in human social history. Well, and it reminds me of a great uh, Danny Kahneman quote that I've I refer back to every time I listen yeah. to a Fed meeting, and I, I wrote about this, you know, in, in the context of a, a Yellen meeting almost a couple of years ago. And he, he says a reliable way to make people believe in falsehoods is frequent repetition, because familiarity is not easily distinguished from truth. Authoritarian institutions and marketers have always known this fact. That's and, right. And, and yeah, and so basically they can create the reality through their position of authority and repetition. They can create the, the reality um, that they, they, they want to create. And, 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 and that's, right, because, you know, Jesse, you know, so much of reality, right? It, frankly, facts can be ambiguous, right? I mean, it's, it, it's not so much, you know, that the unemployment rate is whatever it is, you know. 3.9% or 4.0%. That's not really what drives people's behavior. The, what drives people's behavior is, well, well, how do you think about that? Right? And, and look, we see, once you start looking for this, it's like, it's like once you start looking, frankly, for homeless people, you see them everywhere. Once you start looking for this effort uh, to shake the finger at you and tell you how to think about the world, you see it everywhere, right? So, so you see it certainly throughout, you know, media. Uh, you see it certainly throughout politics, but you see it, you see it throughout the street, right? So, so, so let's think about, uh, you know, my poster child for this is a company like Salesforce.com, which is, you know, that's not a large cap tech stock. This is a mega cap tech stock, uh, you know, over a hundred billion dollar market cap. It's also a company that's achieved that valuation, you know, more than a hundred billion dollars, right? Without ever, without ever having a single penny of gap earnings. And look, according to, with their business model, they, they they never will. And we can talk about that at, at some length if you like. But but they'll never have anything in gap earnings. So, well, how is that possible? You know, when 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 Mark Benioff gives his his you know, quarterly earnings report, how is it possible that this company can be so highly valued if it 
if he reports, yeah, yeah, you know, our gap earnings were once again, you know, zero or minus a penny per share. How is that possible? Well, it's possible because between Benioff, you know, the management of the firm, and between the sell side, uh, who wants to create a story and wants to drive trading volume, right? The, the story about how you should think about Salesforce.com, it's not, what are their gap earnings? No, 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 no. Pay no attention to that. Let me, let me tell you how you should think about their earnings report. And, and so what the street does is they shake their finger at you and they say, the way you should be thinking about Salesforce.com is to focus on pro forma net revenue growth. Now, as you can imagine, I, I have no idea what that phrase even means. Right? You know, pro forma net revenue growth. But that is the metric for Salesforce.com. And it also won't surprise you that pretty much every quarter, Salesforce.com is able to beat and raise its guidance for pro forma net revenue growth, you know, whatever the hell that means. Because it is this constructed metric. And once you start, again, recognizing that, you know, to use a poker term, we're always being played, <laughs> yeah, it, you see it everywhere. And, and that doesn't mean that one should fight the Fed or, you know, short salesforce.com. You know, trust me, I did that my fair share of doing that back in my hedge fund days and would always get my, again, my teeth kicked in or typically get my teeth kicked in on an earnings report. I'm not saying to fight this. What I'm saying is that to be effective in markets today, and frankly, effective in markets at any point in history, you, you have to recognize the game that you're playing. You have to, to, to recognize the, the importance of, of words and the, the, again, I'll use a $10 word, you know, the modalities in which those words are used against you, because they always are. Well, I love that way to think about it, and it reminds me of another quote. Uh, I think it's this was Jim Grant who said, "You know, uh, being a successful yeah. investor is having the crowd agree with you later on." And so, it's direct, it's right. directly focusing on where where is the consensus and where is it headed, and that's something I think people don't pay enough attention to. Well, Jesse, and that this is what actually gives me. <sighs> Well, there are a couple of things that give me hope about the world, right? So, so I, I, frankly, I started writing Epsilon Theory from a pretty dark place, right? Which was um, that, that, that I, I feel like kind of the scales had fallen from my eyes. And, and I was like, say, oh, my God. I, I mean, it's just narrative everywhere. And, and, and the, that the ability for words as you were saying earlier, to take on a life of their own and to persist is just so great. And I just see it everywhere in markets and in politics. So, well, that's, that's, that's pretty damn depressing, right? So, so I started writing about it. And just to, I think the first Epsilon Theory I note I put out, it was, it was almost exactly five years ago. I sent it out to like a hundred, um, you know, friends and colleagues and the like. And and, and since then, right, j just by word of mouth, I mean, we've never, we've never marketed it, we never did it, just by word of mouth, I mean, we've got, you know, close to 100,000 readers now. And, and, and I can't tell you how, how powerfully that's changed my, my life and my view of the world. 
because it's it, it, there are so many of us, and I, I'm going to include you in this this this, this group, Jesse, because I know that you are people who I'll call truth seekers, and you know they're they're not. They're not fringe, right? They're not, they're not tilting at windmills. They, they, they are of this world, right? Meaning that they've been successful. They are engaged in the world, both for investing their own money, their clients' money. And, but they are truth seekers, and, and, and they, they are absolutely trying to do the right thing for their families, for their clients. And I didn't know how many of us are out there. I mean, I mean, we're all over the world, and, it, and it's hard a lot of times to to find each other. But what has been just so personally, intrinsically rewarding for me about writing is finding this community of truth seekers who are trying to do the right thing, who are, you know, frankly, smart enough to make up their own damn mind. And. And I, and I suspect you've you've had a similar experience with 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 your efforts. So that that has been just enormously that that's what gives me hope. And the, the other thing that gives me hope is that the same I call it tools of technology, which are are increasingly being used to augment the power of words and the power of the common knowledge game, uh, particularly social media. Uh, you know, I'm. I, I know you've written a lot about this, and I, and I think you've probably been more, a lot more successful than I have at weaning yourself and your kids from what I call them these dopamine machines. You know, your smartphones. I, you know, I'm 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 kind of hooked, and and these technologies, these dopamine machines, they uh, like I say they're they're a force multiplier for the missionaries. Uh, whether it's the missionaries of the street, whether it's the missionaries of politics, whether it's the missionaries of the central banks, they're they're force multipliers, right? In in their the the missionaries' ability to, um, um, let's say, you know, control the common knowledge game. But the other thing that gives me hope, other than just finding this community of of, of truth seeking people who are of the world. The other thing that gives me hope is, is that the same technologies that drive so much of the, the, the power of the social media technologies, we can actually use these technologies to help protect ourselves, to actually visualize and, and, and see. And, and seeing is believing. And, and to, to really visualize the unstructured data, the words that compose the common knowledge game. And here I'm talking about a particular form of, of what we'll call it AI, artificial intelligence, called natural language processing, NLP. And, and I think that this is such a potentially fruitful area of technology. It's a scary area of technology because, you know, these same technologies can certainly be used to basically help missionaries weave even better spells, right, if you want to think of it that way. But... But this technology is now so, I'll say, inexpensive to tap into, and the the pipes of data are so available that I, I find it is possible to use this technology, this NLP technology, to help arm us truth seekers 
to see these narratives come into being, to see how they wax and they wane. And again, it's not necessarily something that we want to fight, but it, it, it allows us not to be the sucker at the table. Because, you know, there's that old soaker, uh, poker saying that, you know, I've been playing poker for 30 minutes and, and you don't know who the sucker is at the table. It's you. Well, you know, I, my goal in writing and, and talking about this stuff is not to turn everybody into a game theorist or the like. It's just don't be the sucker at the table. Just develop these simple, I call, I call them survival skills for recognizing how and when you're being played. And, and, and so those two things, really seeing that there is this really critical mass of, of, of truth-seeking, well-meaning, um, successful people in the world, combined with the ability to use some of these technologies to arm ourselves, well, you know, I'll, I'll take that. I'll take that. I, I, I think we can make a big difference in the world with a, 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 a group of of citizens and investors who, who, who do have these motivations, these proper motivations. And uh, I, I feel like we've got something to arm ourselves with today. Well, I'm really glad you brought that up because uh, it's true. I am addicted to Twitter, but I have been, able to, <laughs> you know, the main reason for that is like you said, it's, it's given me access to this network of truth seekers oh, that I didn't otherwise. It's amazing. Have to, but it, yeah, it is. It's, it's fantastic. Um, but at the same time, you know, uh, I have been able to wean myself off of <clears throat> a lot of the other the other stuff. I don't even have a cell phone um, anymore. But but uh, in terms of the the flip side of it, you know, part of this network of truth seekers that I've been drawn to recently is a lot of these former uh, insiders at you know Facebook mm-hmm. and Google who have been sounding the alarm about um, the, the dangers of it. And and so that mm-hmm. is that is one thing that I've been really concerned about is that, uh, you know, and, and they, they say it's, you know, nothing less than, um, you know, their individual freedom that's, that's on the line, uh, you know, with the addiction to these you know, platforms and, and services. So, um, yeah, and I, and I do see your point also about, you know, uh, giving those missionaries a voice through that platform allows people to see, see the, the risks of, of being addicted to them. Um, and, and I'm glad to see that that's, that's spreading. Yeah, that, that's right, Jesse, because, you know, everything I'm talking about, I'm talking about the, you know, the large game playing, the crowd watching the crowd. But the, the, the reason that the crowd behavior changes from recognizing that it's part of a crowd and uh, looking for common knowledge, uh, really being driven by the notion not of, of what you think, but what you think that everyone else thinks – you know the the reason that's so effective is is we are as individuals as as human animals we are hardwired to respond to this stuff i it, it it's really hard to to overemphasize the degree to which our brains are biologically evolved to respond to uh, words uh, so the you know the, the 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 human species is is what's called a eu social eu social animal, which is the I call it the highest form of a social animal, and uh, you know the the person to read on all this stuff is 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 Edward O Wilson, uh, you know won the Pulitzer and, and and the like, mostly for his study of ants, 
because there are there are four dominant species, multicellular dominant species on Earth. They all happen to be eusocial animals, right? Three of them are insects. It's it's the bee, the termite, the ant, and then humans, right? And and we those four species, and there are a few others, but 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 very you know scattered and a few between. Really, the the, the humans are the only mammalian you know eusocial species. The hallmark of these incredibly successful species, and, and by success I mean they can literally survive almost anywhere on Earth because they have the ability to adapt uh, a colony, a nest, uh, really almost anywhere, almost anywhere. They have the ability to, to adapt to their environment. How? Because they are constantly communicating with each other. Right? Whether it's the ant, whether it's the termite, whether it's the human being, we all swim in, a, in an ocean of intra-species communication. I mean, I've seen some studies of this, and you probably have too, about how many messages, how many human-created messages are you exposed to in the course of the day? And the answer is thousands Thousands, and, and it's, an incre- it's an incredibly uncomfortable feeling for most humans, uh, me included, to go more than a few minutes without hearing a human-created message or communication. So, you know, this is, this is not an accident, right? This, this, is, this is our greatest strength, frankly, as a species, is that we are hardwired to, to, to swim in this ocean of, of, of communication. But it absolutely means that either as individuals, when we are you know, dealing with social media, or as a crowd, when we are hearing uh, uh, an effective missionary shake his or her finger at us, it absolutely means that while we think we are immune to this stuff, none of us are. None of us are. And, and just recognizing that can make all the difference in the world, uh, both for yourself and for your clients. Absolutely. And, and, and you know, while we're on the topic of technology, um, you're doing some really interesting work in, in visualizing um, how some Thank of these you. things are kind of taking hold uh, among, you know, the, the, the crowd in terms of psychology. Um, Talk a little bit about you know the narrative machine and, and I guess where you sure. where you kind of <clears throat> first came upon that idea. Well, well, the notion of the narrative machine is is really a takeoff from from someone I admire very much, uh, which is which is Ray, who is Ray Dalio uh, of of Bridgewater. So if you, you know if you're familiar with uh, with with Dalio and the and the the Bridgewater approach to uh, to investment, and, and by the way, I think they are the you know they are the you know, my idol, right, frankly, when it comes to uh, uh, being a money manager. You know, uh, Dalio's framework is that, you know, he believes it's about humans as well, I, I get it, but he often talks about the economic machine, right? So, so what he means by the economic machine is that, you know, what's happening in the real economy is 
is the the actions of a machine. You have inputs, you have a transmission mechanism, you have an output, and you can understand it. You can try to predict it. You can try to analyze it through that very simple but very powerful uh, metaphor, that of the machine. And 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 my point is is not that that's wrong. It's not wrong at all. My point is that there is a even bigger machine outside of the economic machine. And it's a larger machine of for us humans, right? Because the, the, the relationship between the real world and stock prices or, you know, bond prices or the like, it, you know, it's, it's, there, there's, there's, there's something on top of or surrounding the economic machine which is true for any sort of of human or social environment, like a market, like an election. And that's what I call the narrative machine. It's it's like uh, Newtonian physics, right? Most of the time, Newtonian physics is is all you need to understand the world. Right? But but there are times like when you know, you get near to the speed of light or you're dealing with really large objects with really intense gravities where actually Newtonian physics breaks down a little bit because it's Newtonian physics is encompassed within, let's call it uh, Einsteinian physics, right? The physics of relativity, which only really rears its head during these extraordinary times in terms of physics. Well, I think it's the same way in terms of the narrative machine really encompassing the economic machine. And it's particularly in these, what we're experiencing today, the, 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 the aftermath now of a, of a systemic financial collapse and the political shockwaves that are still reverberating across the world. That's why I focus on the narrative machine. And what I mean by the narrative machine is exactly what Dalio means by an economic machine. Right? This machine metaphor, you have inputs, you have a transmission process, and you have an outcome. But here the, the, the inputs are words and communications, the thing that, again, that ocean of, of communications that we swim in as animals. The, the transmission mechanism is what I've been describing, the common knowledge game. Uh, there are other games at work, but that's the one that I think has, does the most work in terms of these you know, markets and, and elections we're most concerned about. And then the output is our behavior. Right, the behavior of crowds and of individuals, both for buying and selling stocks, for voting for candidate X or candidate Y. So that's what I mean about the narrative machine. And what's really been such a boon to my research over the last couple of years has been the development of these uh, AI technologies around natural language processing. So it 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 reminds me of, you know, like when Leo Van Hook, you know, invented the microscope, right? And, you know, the first person who took a, you know, a simple microscope and put a drop of, you know, dirty water from the Thames River underneath that microscope. And, and, and you look through it and say, well, oh my God, there's, there's a whole new world here. We can actually visualize these heretofore, uh, you know, invisible to the naked eye phenomenon through this instrument, through this this microscope. And, and that's exactly what I think some of these new technologies, these NLP technologies, allow us to do. They allow us to visualize uh, 
I'll call it sentiment, or that we visualize narratives and and and, and create oh I, you know, Jesse, I think you're old enough like I am to remember flip books, right? Where you'd you know, there were it, it, like, like cardboard little pictures where the, the cartoon picture would just change very little from one piece of cardboard to the next, but you'd you'd flip it between your thumb and your forefinger and you'd start to see a moving picture. Well, that's what we're, we're we're starting to be able to do now with this technology is is not just take snapshots but a series of snapshots of what I'll call the narrative environment that we exist in as investors or citizens see how that's changing and be forewarned or forearmed accordingly it's it's a very exciting time uh, in terms of the, the the tools we can bring to bear to, as you say, visualize something that we've known is there, but we haven't been able to see uh, until these technologies were invented. Absolutely. You know, I, I um, interviewed, um, had Mark Yusko on the show, and I know you guys have had some yeah. discussions over Bitcoin and whatnot. And I, want, I don't want to get into sure. that. But he <laughs> recommended right. a book to me called The Dow Jones Averages, written in 1984. And there was a passage from that book that uh, strikes me as, as really relevant. Uh, you know, the author of the book, uh, Bennett Goodspeed, writes that he, you know, basically his whole investment process involves reading just a ton and uh, looking for um, what is, you know, what is suggested is normal based on all that reading that he's doing in order to recognize anomalies uh, and then looking for when those anomalies be, start to become trends. And it seems to me that what you're trying to do is essentially just quantify this process that he and, and essentially I do with all my reading every day, uh, you know, are trying to infer through, you know, a bunch of just manual labor. <laughs> that's exactly right, Jesse. I, I think that's so wise what you're describing. And I, I tried to, you know, I, I think one of the most frequent questions I'm asked is, well, well, what do you read? And, and my response is, look, I, I read exactly the same stuff that you do. Right. I think where there may be a difference, though, is in how I read. And it, because what you're describing is, is not reading something magical or, you know, that, that only you've discovered. What you're describing is doing something different in how you read. Right. That you're trying to look at it. I'll call it more holistically because that's kind of what you're talking about. And that's exactly what these NLP technologies allow one to do. Right, which is that uh, you're able to bring in massive processing power, so that you're able to do, you know, exactly what you're describing, but to do it in a far more rigorous and and comprehensive way. But that's exactly, I think, what we're trying to do here is not to read something that was secret, right? But frankly, to read what's in plain sight. And to see the relationship and the patterns between what's there in plain sight. Well, and in the context, I know you've tweeted about this several times, but I, I had um, my friend Eric Cinnamon on the show recently. And mm-hmm. he and I have had an ongoing conversation over the last at least six months, couple quarters at least, over what he's seeing. I mean, he, he goes through 300 conference calls, uh, you know, small and small yep. cap companies every quarter. And, um he has been just noticing this uh, rising inflationary pressures uh, as as a, uh, an ongoing theme among companies. Um, and it, absolutely, this this narrative seems to he and I to be taking off 
even though it, it's surprising that, um, you know, there's still not more discussion of, you know, the Fed's behind the curve and, and that inflation. Uh, there's still these kind of, I guess, people hanging on to the, the disinflationary narrative. Um, what, what are you kind of seeing in that context? Well, I, I'm so glad you brought that up because that, that to me, uh, and I, I published it on this pretty recently, has been really the most striking change in a, again, plain sight narrative that I've come across in, you know, a, a professional career now going back close to 30 years of, of trying to understand and identify, you know, how these narratives come into being and, 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 and the like. I, I've got such a much more powerful uh, microscope today than I did 30 years ago, but it's the same effort. And what, what you're describing, I'll call it this kind of um, underlying and yet in plain sight pattern of, of what people are talking about, you see that very dramatically in uh, mainstream financial publications. Uh, so the the megaphone, the the, the media platform, uh, or the, the the common knowledge creation platform, I like to look at uh, is is Bloomberg. You know, there, there are only really I think four of these platforms in the financial world. And what I mean by a platform is that if an article appears on Bloomberg. As a professional investor, you must assume that everyone else, every other professional investor, has seen that article also, right? So that's exactly what I mean by by common knowledge uh, or the creation of common knowledge. You've got Bloomberg, you've got uh, the Journal, uh, you've got you know God help us CNBC, and you know particularly outside the U.S. you've got you've got the FT, the Financial Times. I think those are really the only four venues for common knowledge construction uh, in in our in our world, the world of professional investing. And what you see over the course of the most of this past year is just a for me, it was almost unbelievable, but it's this phenomenal sea change in the centrality and the the the, the meaning of our conversation around inflation. That what has changed is that the crowd is now looking around at the crowd, and the the conversations, the narratives around inflation are everywhere today. They are central to how the crowd is is um, uh, it's the it's the ocean of communication, right? That the crowd, the financial, the professional investment crowd is swimming in today. That was not true a year ago. And it is absolutely true today. So the way I think one should think about that is that, you know, we're swimming in this ocean of communications that are focused on inflation. The moment we have an effective missionary come out there, and that could be Powell, it could be Draghi, it could be Donald Trump, it could be Warren Buffett, Right? You know, these are all missionaries, and they all have access to these platforms that I'm talking about of common knowledge creation. The moment you get a missionary come out there and shake his or her finger at us and say, oh my God, inflation, whew, it's here, that's the spark. That's, that's always the spark for these moments, these inflection moments where uh, what was 
unthinkable at markets, right? We've had 30 years of a deflationary narrative. That's how the narrative shifts. So I, I'm, I'm just in, it's, it's, it's been a very striking observation to me, and it's, and it's exactly in line with what you're describing from, frankly, exactly the same process that I'm describing. I'm just doing it at a different scale and with a different set of instruments. But we're, we're both seeing exactly the same thing that the ocean of communication that we're swimming in has really changed. And so what I'm adding to that is that the way that the, this process works, the way the narrative machine works, the transmission mechanism now is the spark provided by a missionary. That's what we're waiting for, for this spark to become, well, quite the, quite the bonfire. Well, that's that's really helpful to me because you know Eric and I go back and forth, you know, via email. I'm like, how are people not, you know, uh, right recognizing right. this just yet? But uh, you know, I, in Epsilon theory, I think when I was on the website somewhere, I saw um, that you, it, it kind of appears, or maybe something that was written in the description, that um, the site and your writings are kind of the intersection of game theory and history. You've mentioned game theory a few times. Are there any books on the topic of game theory or history that you would recommend the average investor, you know, would, would benefit from reading? Yeah, you, you know, it's 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 a book I need to write, frankly, and I and I and I and I hope that because we kind of live in the age of the essay today. I what I, what I try to do with epsilon theory is write essays that. That, that do have some, if not permanence, at least some some a long shelf life for trying to to illustrate a lot of what we're talking about. Uh, but it, it, that's actually the thing that I uh, you know I, I hope to do over the next um, really just over the next few weeks. I, I think we're going to have an opportunity to to really uh, uh, have epsilon theory be a much more independent voice, and 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 really the the. The, the core of being a more independent voice is to be able to recommend uh, books, uh, uh, resources uh, for you know reading list <laughs> if it comes to that uh, for 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 exactly that. So uh, so 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 stay tuned. It's it's uh, it, you know it's it's that this intersection uh, I, I think is very uh, fruitful, uh, but it's one that that that. You know, it's certainly waiting, you know, not just me, but lots of people to, to, to really write the story of it and, and, and do it in a way that I, I think can be accessible, um, you know, more so than it's been approached in the past. Well, if you need anyone to uh, read the manuscript early, I'm, I'm raising my hand right now. <laughs> I'd be, I'd be, done, I'd done. I'll take you up on that for sure. sure. Okay. If so, you know, Epsilon Theory, um, the, the website uh, is epsilontheory.com. And that's it. That's the best way for people to keep up with you. And how else? Where else can people find you online? Well, you know, like you, it's uh, it's Twitter, which is uh, which is just at you know epsilon theory. So that's my 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 nom de plume for sure. And uh, I think if you uh, just take a look for epsilon theory, you'll 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 find some ways to uh, to, to find it. And I highly recommend that I started following you several months ago and, and it's really interesting to see the kind of interim updates, uh, you know, on, on these topics through Twitter in light of, you know, real time events. So, um, it's been a blast to play on Twitter. It's been wonderful to have you on the show, Ben. This has been a, just a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure, Jesse, really anytime. Looking good, Billy Ray!
And that does it for another episode of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. As always, you can find notes and charts related to this episode at thefelderreport.com. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, buy low, sell high. Man looks in the abyss. There's nothing staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss.